Let's pray. Father, we now come before You, our holy God, grateful that we come through the blood of the cross to sing and worship, and now to be under Your Word. What a great privilege it is to unite as Your people, to sing in one voice how great You are, to experience in one sense the unity of the body through Christ. And so now, Father, may we learn together as one body. May we fall under Your Word together. May we be changed. And may we together put into practice what Your Spirit will teach us this morning. And I just pray this in in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and return back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11 is where we are this morning. We are continuing our, our study here of Luke, and uh, if this is your first Sunday here, we're just studying through this book, thought by thought, and we have left off here at chapter 11. And uh, I came across a story this week that uh, really made me think of this text a lot. Here's the story. It's a story of a young couple that uh, were, were dating, rather serious couple in their, in their late 20s, and and uh, the, the, the guy had planned a really nice evening out for his girlfriend, and so they went to a really nice restaurant, one of those kind of couples, Italian restaurants, and, and they went into this place, and they, they were having dinner together, and this guy had it all planned out. He had uh, flowers brought to the table, her favorite flowers, and, and at one point he had a violinist come over and serenade him while they were, you know, uh, eating, and, and the whole thing was laid out, um, you know, perfect. And then at this certain moment, he gets down on one knee in the middle of the restaurant. Everyone's watching. They're all looking. And he begins to start saying these beautiful words of poetry and expressing his love. And he just lays it all out there, right? And then he says, will you marry me? And she just stared at him. And that's all she did. She just stared. Not one comment. Left the guy on his knee just looking up at her, and she just stared. That's it. One awkward minute that felt like 50 hours went by. He finally gets up. She says no, nothing to him, not a word. He gets up. He sits at the table. The whole restaurant is trying to recover from the awkwardness of this moment. Right? Can you imagine that? Everyone's trying to get back. And they get up and they leave. You know, some questions in life demand an answer, don't they? Right? (laughs) There's some questions that are just hard to leave hanging out there. Will you marry me is one of them. Right? (laughs) That's like an awkward moment when she's just sitting. Now, actually, she answered the question, did she not? Can you guess? What do you think the answer was? (laughs) All the girls yell out, no, right? You knew, right? All the guys are going, I'm still not certain. <laughs> huh. huh? What did he do? You know, what do we do with this, right? Clueless guys, right? Obviously, this guy was in a completely different place in the relationship than she was. And he missed probably a lot of signals there along the way. And he said, well, now, John read the text. I'm thinking, what in the world does that story have to do with this text as, as John read it for you today? But just stop and think about this. Some questions will force you into an answer. 
Her silence was an answer. There is no way to not answer the question, will you marry me, right? Silence is a no, a no is a no, and a yes is a yes. And a maybe is actually a no, don't find hope in a maybe. Okay, that's just tip for guys. Okay. Maybe's no, silence is no, no is no, yes is yes. Yes without tears or excitement could be a no as well, right? <laughs> yeah is a no, right? We just go through, right? You're either yes or no with that answer, with that question. And, and the reason why I thought about this, this, this text as I was thinking about that story I heard is for this reason. Jesus, when he came into the world, he presented himself in such a strong and powerful way, he demanded an answer. You're either going to believe what he said and believe it by faith, or you're going to reject it. Right? You, you are either trusting in this message and you are believing it, or you're not. And there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Now, it's important to recognize this because this is what Jesus does. He forces people into an answer. You either recognize that He is the light of the world, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, your soul path to God, your reconciler, your one who's going to make wrongs into right, bring the judgment of God, the peace of God, the rule of God. He's either bringing all of that and you say, yes, I believe it, or you say no. Now, no comes in different forms. It comes in different forms. No looks differently. Not all no's are no's. For example, this woman's silence was a no. It's clearly a no. The way they walked out, the way she walked out ahead of him and everything else about it, she was not happy about that moment. It was a no. See, no can take different forms. What we're going to look at here today in chapter 11 is we are going to see unbelief. And we're going to see it in all of its, its, its depths and dimensions. We have studied what it means to place your faith in Christ. We've studied what it means to trust in Him. We've studied what it means to believe in Him. Now what Luke does under the inspiration of the Spirit is turn our attention to what it means to not believe. What does it look like to actually be in unbelief? And this is very important to see because unbelief can be deceptive. Unbelief can be very deceptive. There are many people, Matthew 7 tells us, who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things And he's for you? And he's going to say, depart from me. The scariest thing is to think you're going to heaven and to wind up in hell. It's a scary thought. And so what Luke does is he gives us an understanding of what unbelief looks like. And what I would kind of classify, these are just my classifications, I see three forms of unbelief in this text. I call it religious unbelief, neutral unbelief, and demanding unbelief. Religious unbelief are people who come face to face with Jesus, and in its most extreme case, will call Jesus evil. But the reason why I call it religious unbelief is they're still trying to use the terms of good and evil, but they have ascribed Jesus as being on the evil side of the ledger and come up with their own path, their own way. These are the people in our day that might say, oh, look at all the horrible things that have done in the name of Christianity. It's a horrible religion. It's an evil religion. Look at all these horrible things. And they just come and they attack. It's religious unbelief because they are saying, we do believe there's good and evil, and we've just put Christ on the evil side of the ledger. That's the most blatant unbelief. 
We'll see that in here. There's also another kind of unbelief. It's neutral unbelief. Neutral unbelief is those who reject Jesus, but they're very sentimental towards Him. They love Him. They love to learn about Him. They love to revere Him. But what they don't do is they don't obey Him. They'll learn. They'll worship. They'll have great experiences with Jesus. They'll, they'll listen to you know, Christian music. They'll be all in in terms of the experience of Jesus. But when it actually comes to saying, no, my life belongs to you and I'm willing to die to everything to follow you, they haven't done that. And neutral unbelief is actually unbelief rejecting Jesus. We'll see that today. And then the third unbelief is demanding unbelief. Demanding unbelief is the type of unbelief that rejects Jesus in a very scholarly way. He needs to prove himself to me. Years ago when I first started out in ministry and I was preaching, a guy would come up to me after I was done preaching and he'd always say, I'm not convinced yet. I'm not convinced yet. You can say all that and I'm not convinced yet. You know, that, that's unbelief. He's demanding more than what God has revealed. And it's arrogant what it is. So we're going to see all three of these forms of unbelief, and we're going to see how Jesus responded to them. And I think there's two things we're going to pull from this, hopefully. First is I do think it's important that we examine our own hearts. Unbelief is deceptive. And we do want to make sure that we believe. That we really have true faith. And this is a moment to, to, to look inside. But second... I believe that this text helps us learn how to engage people who are in unbelief as we see how Jesus dealt with them. He dealt with all three groups differently in this text, and, and, and we'll get a chance to learn how to engage people with truth as they deal with their unbelief. But before we look at these, the way Jesus responded, we have to first look at Jesus and the way He revealed Himself. Because this, there's a revelation that goes on that is what precipitated all of this response. So let's look firstly here at the revelation of Jesus. Look at verse 14 with me. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from, seeking from him a sign from heaven. So here's the account. It begins, you got this demon-possessed man. The demon's a mute demon. So what we learn about this is as the demon overpowered this man, he kept the man from speaking. So picture being in the presence of this guy. He can't speak, and the presence of evil is over him. Be pretty intense situation. And just be an intimidating situation. Jesus comes up to this guy. We don't know how he did it, but probably just did it the way he does with all of them. Be gone. And it's done. Now, there are three responses to Jesus. You can see them in the text. One response is, was shared by everyone. Notice, the people marveled. It's the first response. They were in awe. Of course you would be in awe if you saw that. If a demon-possessed man was standing up here, kept somebody from speaking, and I said, in the name of Jesus, be gone, and it was gone, you'd all go, whoa. You'd be in awe of that. It's a powerful moment. They were marveling at him. And that's actually a group of people. Okay? That, that's actually a group. These are going to, what I'm going to we'll see later, they'll be the neutral unbelievers. But then, of that whole group, there was a subsection of marvelers that had rejected Jesus. Notice what they said. He cast out demons by Beelzebul. 
Some of your translations have Beelzebub. Others of you have the translation Beelzebul. There is a difference. All right, what is the difference? Beelzebul, B-U-L, means Lord of the house. Beelzebub means Lord of the flies. Both were terms used to define Satan. They were just names people gave for Satan. Okay, so, so basically what they're saying is, of they're, they're marveling, but then these are the religious unbelievers. They've rejected him, and they're saying, he did this under the authority, under the power of Satan. This is pure evil. There's a third group. Notice a third group. Others tested him. They needed a sign. They basically were saying, wow, this is really cool, but we're not convinced yet that he's the Messiah. We're not convinced yet that he's coming from the kingdom of God. We just, we're not convinced we are not there. We need another sign. We need a little bit more evidence. And then we'll be certain. Okay? And those are, those are the third unbelief there. Okay. Now, let's look at how Jesus dealt with it. The first response deals with the religious unbelief. Those that said he did it under the power of Satan. So let's look at this. Now, the religious unbelief, the, the key to them is they deny the divinity of Jesus. What they will say, in essence, is that Jesus is evil. We come across this today. There's many people you can meet with that are hostile towards Christianity, hostile towards Jesus. They'll throw the crusades off at your face real quick, right? Just look at all these horrible, evil things. These are wicked people. And they have this antagonism towards Jesus. Okay, religious unbelief. Now, notice Jesus, verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts. Now, just stop there for a minute. That always, whenever I read that about Jesus, it really shows me how much self-control he had. You ever get in an argument with somebody and you think you know what they're thinking, and so it makes you more angry? Could you imagine actually knowing what they're thinking? Right? <laughs> to actually know their thoughts and to sit there patiently and deal with them. It just shows you how powerful he is. Right? You get angry when you think you know, but you really don't know. He really did know. And yet, he responds very patiently. Notice, he knows their thoughts. And he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Okay, so what's he saying here? He's saying, okay, you guys are saying I did this on the power of Satan? Guys, this doesn't even pass the logic test. Right? I mean, this calling me evil is really illogical. How in the world would Satan win anything if he casts his own demons out? Put it in our vernacular, as he talks about these kingdoms divided against themselves. Let's just put it this way. How many wars would we win if the Navy kept firing on the Marine Corps every time they stormed a beach? Right? Send the Marines off your boat, right? They're charging the lake. Shoot them! You're not going to win any war that way. He's saying Satan would never cast a demon out. He had control over this guy. He had him mute. He had him in bondage. I just freed him. Here's how I would say this. If I were you know, just using Jesus' logic here with somebody, I would say, listen, 
You want to call Jesus evil. You want to call Christianity evil. I'm going to ask you to do two things. I'm going to ask you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then I'm going to ask you to read Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. Tell me which one is evil. This is what he's saying. This is so silly. This is so illogical. This makes no sense. But then he goes on in 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Good question. Right? That's a good question. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sons cast them out? Meaning this, there were people that had casted out demons in their day. Jesus wasn't the only one who did it. Now, he did it much differently than anyone else because everyone else has to appeal to the authority of God. He would just say, be gone, because he was the authority. And when he'd walk in a room, the demons would shudder and, and quake in fear. So he's clearly different, but he is kind of bringing up a rational thing here. You know, you've seen demons cast it out before. Why aren't you calling them evil? If your own guys are doing what I'm doing, and I'm doing the exact same thing they're doing, then aren't they evil too? Again, illogic. Why is Jesus doing this? He's trying to show you that to call him evil is completely irrational. If you really look at what he's done, completely irrational. So then notice how he goes further. He says, therefore, they will be your judges. These individuals that you've approved of are going to condemn you. Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I believe that when Jesus said that, what he said in verse 20, that would have been a very intense and powerful moment. And I believe that that statement in verse 20 would have hit them between the eyes and either made some repent, well, either make them repent or hate them all the more. Why would I say this? Well, you have to think and go all the way back to Exodus chapter 8. Don't turn there. You have to go back to Exodus chapter 8 to understand why I believe, what I believe Jesus was saying here. Let me tell you the story of what happened in Exodus chapter 8. Moses is in his confrontation with Pharaoh to let people go. And he goes up to Pharaoh the first time, and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. So then Moses has Aaron raise his staff, and all the water turns to blood, right? Now, do you remember this part of the story? Some people forget this part of the story. Pharaoh turned to his magicians. Do you remember this? And Pharaoh turned to his magicians, and they raised their staff, and what happened? Water turned to blood, too. They mimicked them. And on that basis, Pharaoh says, I'm not doing anything my guys can't do. So, happens again. Moses comes up to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, Aaron raised a staff. The staff gets raised, and frogs start coming out everywhere. Pharaoh says, boys, do it. Boys lift up their staff. What happens? Frogs start coming out. He's mimicking them. Third time, let my people go. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Aaron raises his staff. Gnats come out. They're coming all over the place. Pharaoh says, boys, do it. They raise up their staff. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And then the magicians go up to Pharaoh and go, uh, we think this is the finger of God. We think this is the finger of God. Jesus says, if I do this by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
What's he doing? By saying that I'm doing this by the finger of God, and you guys are on the opposite side of this, he's putting them in the same place as Pharaoh. You guys are rejecting the power of God. God has worked. He's, I believe he's pulling the imagery in on these Jewish people so they would see this and see where they are. The finger of God is at work is what he's saying. Where are you in this process? Where are you in this? You see, the kingdom of God has come and you are being judged. You're being illogical. But then he goes on further to even make his point. Look at 21. When a strong man fully armed, guards his own palace. His goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. You see that? It's, it's, again, he's just kind of saying, this is irrational, guys. You know, a strong guy is going to protect his stuff. So pretty much no one can take the stuff away unless one stronger than him has come. It's the only way to conquer a strong man. What he's saying is, I am stronger than the devil. I've just conquered him. He's the strong man, and guess what? I'm stronger. And I've just defeated him. And I've just taken his spoil away from him. I've just freed this guy. I've taken it away from Satan. He's set free. The strong man has just been defeated by someone stronger. And we know Jesus is stronger because he would walk in a room and the demons would shudder. He would never appeal to any other source. He would just say, be gone. And they would be gone. So here's his point. To call Jesus evil is irrational. Look at what he does. He sets people free. He restores people. When society is crashing down on someone, he goes in there and defends them and lifts them up. When someone's in pain, he relieves their pain. He's come to restore, to set things in order, to break the bondage of sin and depravity. He did not come to increase it. You want to look at Jesus, realize he's right and pure. He's not evil. Answering the, the rejection of unbelief that, that comes in this religious form is to say, listen, look at what he has done and tell me, is that evil? Is that evil? That's the first answer. Now he moves to dealing with the neutral unbelief. He moves into dealing with this whole issue of people that are neutral towards him. They have not actually been all in. And this neutral unbelief, what it does is it denies obedience to Jesus. It denies the obedience to Jesus. Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's he saying? If you're not with Jesus... You're against it, right? This is that element, like I said, Jesus comes in, he demands an answer. You're either with him or you're not. Now, how do you know if you're with him or not? The next phrase, whoever does not gather with me scatters. To be with Jesus isn't to have a sense of a sentimental feeling towards him or to think he's really cool. It's actually to participate in what he's doing in this world. To truly be with him is to say, I want to join whatever gifts you've given me. I want to use them and join you in what you're doing in this world. So it isn't just saying, I revere you. It isn't just saying, I don't want to be in bondage to sin anymore. It's actually saying, I want to join you 
Because if, if you're not gathering with me, if you're not part of this work I'm doing, drawing people in, bringing them into the kingdom and, and making them part of the kingdom so they'll draw more people in, if you're not part of that process, then guess what? You're actually against me. You're scattering. You're pushing people away. That's the harsh reality. There's no neutral stance. There's no neutral stance. Now he's going to illustrate it with a rather intense illustration. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That's a pretty intense illustration, isn't it? You read that and you go, what in the world? What is he saying? Well, Jesus has just casted a demon out of a guy, right? So the demon is gone. But the fact that the demon is out of this guy is not enough. Not enough. It's not enough to just say, I've stopped sinning. It's not enough to just say, I'm not going to be that anymore. In this case, it's not enough for the demon to be casted out. Why? Every human being needs a Lord. Every human being needs to serve something. If this man, the demon leaves this man, here's the imagery, it's traveling through and there's no place to dwell and there's no place to rest and there's no place for water and nourishment. And so the demon is looking and so when it, when it finds no place, it comes back and if that person is not serving Jesus, he's saying it will come back and the evil will even be worse. The evil will even be worse. So here's, here's, here's the picture. Best way to, to illustrate this is uh, maybe with, a, with something that we might understand even in our culture. I knew a guy when I was 20 years old. He was studying uh, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. That was his major. Ancient languages focusing on those four languages. This guy was brilliant. He could answer any question in the Bible you could ever give to him. Any question. Everyone kind of put this guy up on a pedestal as being the guy. He knew it all. He was sharp, great communicator, had a lot of natural gifts, natural skills, theological brilliance, could understand complex things, was a good teacher. Got married. Started having marriage problems. Marriage completely fell apart on him. Somebody went and talked to this guy and said to him, hey, brother, I want to come alongside one of his Christian friends. I want to help you. I want to help you in your walk. I want to, I want to help you obey Christ and, and love and forgive your wife. And he said, no way! Absolutely not. What she did to me is unforgivable. I hate her! Just got passionate. Just anger came outside of him. Now how does a guy go from being kind of the Bible answer man who knew it all to filled with rage inside him? Jesus would say, you know what? He probably never said in his heart, I want to follow you. You see, I want to be used by you for your kingdom. I want you to take my gifts and my talents, whatever they are, and use them however you want. What he did is he learned a lot about Jesus. 
He learned a lot about theology. He learned a lot about doctrine. He learned a lot. He could come to church. He could get enthralled in the music. But never in his heart did he say, I'll follow you. So when the time came to follow Jesus, to forgive his enemy, to turn the other cheek, there was nothing inside of him that said, I want to do that. I don't care. Because never in his life did he ever say, I want to follow you. Never got there. Jesus is saying, do you understand something? The evil that will come if somebody just experiences some kind of reformation in their life and clean things up, if they're not actually moving towards a way of saying, I will follow you, the fall will be great. It will be a deep fall. Because the issue in life is to say, I'll follow you, Jesus. Whatever you want from me, I will do. Then to the, an opportunity came that clearly illustrated this moment. Um, notice verse 27. This just hits this point home. As he said these things, so he's saying this stuff about the demons and stuff. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now what's going on? This woman just says, Man, you are so incredible and your mom must be so proud. Right? That's what's going on. You're just so great and your, your mom just is such a great person and she's so blessed because look at how great you are. She's revering him. She's got all this awe, right? This guy just cast out a demon. He just schooled some Jews. He just, I mean, the guy just is so incredible. And she's just watching this saying, You're so awesome. And he said, do you understand something? It's not my mom who's going to be blessed. Blessing comes when you hear me and obey me. When you say, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. See, there's no neutral, a neutral stance towards Jesus where you could revere him. You could totally be like this woman. You're the greatest thing in the world. Your mom's the most awesome mom. Man, she must be so blessed to have you as a son. And Jesus is saying, that's not the point. Sentimentalism will never carry you to obey Jesus in the fire and in the storm. you realize that? Sentimentalism is not strong enough to take you through the, the, the valley of the shadow of death. It's not strong enough. Having an emotional appeal, an emotional sentimentalism, won't carry the day. What carries the day is when somebody in their heart says, I want to follow you. And Jesus goes as far as to say, if you haven't gotten there, you're not there yet. It's still unbelief. So, Jesus deals with this religious unbelief. He deals with this neutral unbelief. But there's one more unbelief He deals with. One more unbelief, demanding unbelief. Demanding unbelief denies the message of Jesus. Right? It'll deny what God has revealed. Look at the way he deals with this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, by the way, just picture this. All this is going on. He's casting out this guy, and you can imagine the stir, and people are talking about it, and he's having these intense conversations with people, and the crowds are now starting to press in upon him. Pretty intense moment. And notice what he leads off with. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. 
But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they have repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you've got this group and they're saying, man, you guys, we're not convinced Jesus. I mean, yeah, it's a great miracle, but, you know, we need more evidence. And Jesus is saying, you want more evidence? I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and we're going to pull out two illustrations for you. One is Jonah and one is the Queen of Sheba. What happened? Jonah, we know what happened to Jonah. God calls Jonah. Of course, Jonah doesn't want to go and preach because he knows that these people are going to repent, and he doesn't want them to repent. He hates them. So he's going the other way. What does God do? God persuades him, rather so gently, to come this way, and and he goes, and he gets there. What does he do? He stands in the middle of town, and he says, judgment's coming. Let's close in prayer. That was his message. The people repent. They repent massively. They're tearing their clothes. They're They are repenting. I mean, it's so huge, and God spares the people. And he's saying, you know what? You guys want a sign. You realize something? A prophet came and announced the coming judgment of the kingdom of God upon a nation, and this evil, wicked nation, these Assyrians who were our great enemies, have repented. You want a sign? Look at the repentance of your enemy, Assyria. There's your sign. The presence of the finger of God, the kingdom of God, is right here in front of you, and you say you need more? On the day of judgment, you know what's going to happen? There are going to be a bunch of Assyrian Gentiles at the kingdom of God, right there at the throne of God. And when you see them, you are going to feel condemned because they repented at the presence of the kingdom of God, and you did not. And he says, on the day of judgment, the queen of Sheba is going to be there because she recognized Solomon was the wisest man in the world. And she was willing to take a long, dangerous journey to sit at his feet and learn. And here, the very wisdom of God is presented to you. And you refuse to sit at my feet and learn. All you do is challenge me. You need more. You're not convinced. You need more. And he's saying, you guys stand condemned. There's going to be an Ethiopian queen and a bunch of Assyrians in heaven. And when you see them, you will feel the condemnation because you're being arrogant. You're being arrogant. That's what he's saying to him. It's very powerful because he's saying that, that push is arrogant. God has revealed his kingdom in Jesus Christ. To say you need more, to say that you need more from God, is arrogant. And it's unbelief. Unbelief. You see, he's unpacking this unbelief and he's challenging us to say, hey, listen, God has given you everything you need to see, everything you need to understand, all that you need, you have in Christ. There's nothing more. And anytime we look and say, God, I need more, I want more, I need more, I need more, I need this, that's unbelief is what Jesus is saying. Unbelief. So you see, Luke, he takes us down this road. What he says to us, 
Listen, this is unbelief. Religious unbelief, neutral unbelief, demanding unbelief. And then what Luke does is he gives us Jesus' illustration. I mean, Jesus' conclusion, I should say. And in fact, the conclusion that I want to bring this to is Jesus' conclusion in verses 33 through 36. This is how Jesus applied what he just said. And I can't really apply it any better than Jesus. So let's just take his. Okay, let's look at his application. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand that those who enter, those who enter may see the light. Now, he's, he's setting up two illustrations, two metaphors to make his point. The first metaphor is just to establish the importance of light. No one turns a light on to cover it up. When you turn on a light on, you need a light, and you want a light, and you want to be able to see what you're doing. It's really dumb to go into a room and turn on a light and then cover it up. Light is important. That's the first statement. Now he's moving now to a second statement to drill it home a little bit deeper. Uh, to expand the metaphor a little bit. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now that's clear. Just as there's lamps that light up a room, your eyes light up your body. If you're blind, you can't see. Therefore, everything is dark. If your eyes are open and you can see, then your whole body's full of light, and that's obviously a good thing. So light is important. And the light to your body is important. Now, establishing those two premises, he takes it to its spiritual conclusion. Therefore, remember, therefore marks a conclusion. Therefore, here's how he's going to apply it. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. You hear his point? Be careful. You might be in unbelief but you might actually think you're believing. You might be in unbelief. You've attacked Jesus and you thought, no, I've found the truth and it's not over here. Not in Jesus, it's over here. Saying, be careful, that's darkness. You might be thinking, boy, I love Jesus, man. I love him. I love his mom. I love everything about him, man. He's just this great guy. I love worshiping. I love studying him. But never in my heart have I said, I want to follow you. I've actually just said, I want to love you and I want to love you more. When it comes to my week, though, I just pretty much do my own thing. He'd say, be careful, that's darkness. That's not light. You might actually say, I need more from Jesus. I need more. I need more evidence. I need more proof. I'm not convinced yet. He'd say, be careful, that's darkness. That's not light. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. But man, if you really see this, if you really say, Jesus, you are pure, you are holy, you are the revelation of God, and I'm all in, and what you've provided is enough for me. I want to just live for you. Your whole body's full of light. And it's going to do its thing. So his application is to be careful. And we should do that. We should take his application to heart and ask ourselves, and to be challenged ourselves, do not be fooled in religious unbelief. Where you explain away Jesus. He says, do not be fooled in neutral unbelief where you refuse to follow him. Don't be fooled in demanding unbelief where you need Jesus to do more for you. He says, instead, say, I'm all in Jesus. 
I'm all in. Would you bow your head with me? Why don't you just take a couple of seconds in your own heart. Just ask the simple prayer. Jesus, am I all in? Do I assign wickedness to You? Have I challenged You? Have I bought into that worldview that says Christianity is evil? Am I just one who just loves the emotion and the sentimentality, but I haven't actually said I want to follow You? Do I feel like I don't have enough and I need more and I'm demanding and demanding? Bring that before Jesus. Just say, Father, I want to be all in. Take a moment and pray that. Father, these are good words to be reminded as we are brought face to face with what unbelief looks like. Some things demand an answer and Jesus is one of them. Lord, I'm grateful that we come to You not because of fear, but we come to You because of love. That we take this fear of death, insecurities of our own heart, worries of our souls, and we exchange them for life. We exchange them for peace. We exchange them for forgiveness. Father, may everyone here today see how great Jesus is. He's not evil and wicked. He's one who's come to save and to serve and to restore. And so, Father, may we see that. May we embrace that truth. Your children. And may we be all in. Help us not to be neutral. But to say, I want to follow You. Use my gifts and my talents, whatever they are, to bring about Your, your glory and Your kingdom on earth. I thank You for Your patience and Your love. Thank You for providing this moment to be able to search our souls. And I thank You for the grace that we stand in as we do that. May our eyes be lifted to the glory of Jesus. And may our lives be motivated to serve all for Your kingdom and for Your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.